Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Ryan Baxter coming to us from beautiful, wintry New Hampshire, and we have some interesting topics to discuss relating to breathing, and uh, you become quite an enthusiast of the normal everyday thing that we we hardly think about, uh, but I'd, I'd love for you to... Um, uh, say hello to the audience and tell me tell me about your background. You, you're um, you're a software engineer, but you're you're deep into the ancestral scene these days. Yeah, uh, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I've kind of dove down this ancestral path, ancestral health path. Um, I started back in 2015 um, when I kind of decided that I wanted to put some something behind uh, my motivation to work out. So I decided, and I hated running. And I hated just doing pointless things like going to the gym and sitting on elliptical and whatnot. So I decided that I wanted to do a Spartan race because it involved obstacles in addition to running. So I figured I could tolerate the running if I had to do something else besides just running. Um, And so I did my first one in 2015 with my wife. um, And it was just three miles. And um, we finished uh, the course together and, and I immediately told her that I want, couldn't wait to do my next one. And she told me she would never do it again. <laughs> uh, but then uh, as I looked to do my next one, they, Spartan has this uh, thing called the trifecta where you basically do three different length races. It's generally like a three to five mile race an eight to 10 mile race, and then like a 14 plus mile race. And so I want to do my trifecta the next year. And I had, I had no like running background. I was not athletic. Like you said, I was a computer scientist, software engineer. Um, so I spent a lot of time, uh, <laughs> at a computer, uh, throughout my childhood and into college and high school and stuff like that. So I never really got into sports. So I didn't know anything about training. I didn't know anything about diet, nutrition or anything like that. But I, you know, I knew that working out was probably good for me, especially now that I had finished college and, um, I was, uh, you know, uh, I was putting on some weight and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I, I started searching around how to train for these things. And back then the first thing that came up was Ben Greenfield. <clears throat> and I started to listen to Ben's podcast as many people do is great source of information. And then I heard this guy come on the podcast, uh, named Mark Sisson. And he was talking about this book, new book he had wrote with you, um, called primal endurance. And so, not having any other options or anything better to, to use to, as a guideline to eat and train for what was going to be a, a 14 mile race on a side of a ski mountain uh, with 30 obstacles, I decided that I would get the book and read it and follow along. And that's how I kind of got started into this whole thing. <laughs> and uh, well, actually then a few years later, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened in between, but uh, I eventually signed up to, for the primal health coach program, became a primal health coach and, uh, now spend some part-time health coaching people in addition to being a software engineer. Oh, how fun. I wonder if you could blend those two professions, like, you know, keep, get the engineers healthier or, or something, uh, you know, bring the, bring the technology into the, um, uh, the human health uh, goals. I've, I've thought about it, um, you know, particularly around engineers and health. Cause we all, like I said, we don't have the best health. We sit a lot in, behind a computer and don't have the best habits and don't get outside and, 
Typically, you know, um, but, uh, and I do love the technology part of health. So I love the data tracking and metrics and all that fun stuff, CGMs and aura rings, and I nerd out on all the data. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's kind of, kind of interesting to blend the two together. Well, back to your comments about the Spartan race and, you know, needing some kind of, uh, motivation to go and run that far. And now with the obstacles and the challenge and the, the compelling nature of, uh, all the skills you have to show out there, I think that's an interesting comment. And I, I, I wrote an article recently called, um, uh, don't jog. It's too dangerous for Mark Stanley Apple. And I, I did a video called jogging 2.0, where I just had this epiphany in my own life here after decades of heading out the door every morning for my morning run, starting when I was a, a high school and college athlete. And it just seemed so natural. I wasn't pushing myself hard. You know, I was doing it properly with that aerobic, uh, heart rate, but, all of a sudden just kind of, um, you know, became uh, bored with the objective and realized that, um, you know, th this recent science that uh, the cardiovascular training effect can happen uh, in a variety of ways. And you do not need this steady state cardio to obtain uh, the, the vaunted goal of cardiovascular fitness and health protection and all that. And I think Spartan Race, obviously exploding in popularity in recent years, has uh, tapped into this concept where, um, you know, you can have more fun, uh, have more broad-based fitness competency to develop when you're, I don't even know uh, the nature of the obstacles. Maybe you could like take us through one of your races and, and the crazy stuff that you did. I know you have to climb a wall and then I, I see the barbed wire too, which is like, wait a second, I don't know, but what, what do they put out there? Yeah, they're, they're, those are some of the quote-unquote easier ones. Of course, the wall can be very challenging depending on your height, right? Uh, so the taller you are, um, you know, the easier it might be for you. Uh, but yeah, all the obstacles, you know, the thing that I that drew me, like I said, is that it's not just running or biking or swimming. It's, it's you know, there's stuff to do in between that. I find the running to be monotonous, right, um, to be honest with you. But when you tell me that I need to run on a mountain or on a trail, that's a little bit better, right? Because I have something, you know, I have something to keep my attention on, just pounding the pavement. And then when you tell me that every so often I'm going to have to do an obstacle, like that's just even better, right, for me. Um, and there's a lot of obstacles. Like you said, there's, there's, you know, the common ones that you see, like crawling under barbed wire and jumping over a wall and um, climbing rope. Um, and there is more challenging ones, different ones. They always try to be innovative um, and different obstacle course races have different types of obstacles, which is, is really cool, uh, too. But, um, you know, some of the more common ones would be like tire flips. So Spartan has like a 400 pound tire that you need to, for the, for the men that you need to flip, uh, bucket carries and sandbag carries. So you're typically carrying, um, you know, around 60 pounds, um, in a bucket or in a sandbag, you know, up the side of a mountain or, you know, over rocks and trails through water and, I've done all kinds of things like that. Um, there's a lot of grip strength involved. So um, a lot of my training revolves around my grip. Um, so hanging from things, like you said, even your grip is needed to go over a wall, but you know, you're doing monkey bars. They have monkey bars that spin in a circle, um, both, uh, you know, uh, forwards and backwards and side to side. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of grip strength things. So hanging things, climbing, jumping, you know, all kinds of different feats of strength. So I've done a lot of different stuff. Yeah. It's got to be tough when you're uh, taxed from running uh, in between. 
and then you're approaching some monkey bar, which is hard yeah. enough if you were doing it at rest, but man, that's got to be grueling. Yeah. So, um, you know, your grip endurance and your strength endurance is really important um, in obstacle course racing. So the longest obstacle course race I did was uh, a Spartan Ultra, and it was um, a 50K uh, obstacle course race, uh, which had 60 obstacles and took me, it was on a ski mountain. I think we had over 10,000 feet of elevation and it took me just uh, or a little over 13 hours to do. Um, and the last lap, so you did two laps of the course and um, which made up the, the 50K and the last lap on the last few obstacles, I was just, I was spent, you know, <laughs> things that I could normally do very easily, like climbing a rope or you know, like you said, just going through monkey bars or they have this thing called a rig, which is a combination of like swinging from gymnastics rings and a pipe and um, ropes and stuff like that. Things that I could normally do with, with ease was challenging, very challenging at the end of that. So yeah, your endurance also, your strength endurance comes into play big time for sure. What happens if you're, if you're spent and you can't make it through the obstacle? Depends on the race, uh, the race series. So in Spartan, if you fail the obstacle, you have to do 30 burpees, um, oh. proper, proper form, you know, um, or proper Spartan form, which is your test, your chest touches the ground, you stand up, you jump in the air, your hands have to go over your head. If you don't do that, then you get penalized, um, with the time penalty. Um, then um, other race brands, they'll give you uh, as many uh, um, as many times as you, you can try the obstacle as many times as you want, but you'll have like a band around your wrist. Um, and so if you, if you give up on the obstacle, they'll cut your band. And basically it's kind of like you, you have the people who completed without failing an obstacle and you have the people who completed with failing an obstacle after that. Um, so some race brands do that. Some brands are, are just very, you know, beginner friendly where they, you know, if you can't do an obstacle, you don't feel comfortable doing it. And Spartan does have like an open vision. So you, there's this option as well, but if you can't do an obstacle, you don't feel like you, you've, it's not safe for you, or you don't have the physical capacity to do it. You can just, you know, walk right by it, um, instead. Um, so it's, you know, depending on your level of, of, um, competitiveness, um, and your desire to do something, you can choose the option that's right for you. Well, we're going to get into this breathing stuff, and I'm, I want to go uh, slowly when we talk about the CO2 and these, these scientific concepts. Uh, but I'm also curious, uh, so you're, you're in this, uh, immersed in this software career, and then you um, go into the, the Primal Health Coach certification, and I'm wondering, like, how has it affected your, uh, your workday and your your day to day lifestyle habits that you that you you know you're still compelled to spend a lot of time in front of the screen. Mm. So um, yeah, I make I make I try to integrate a lot of the concepts that are uh, promoted, you know, via um, you know the primal blueprint and ancestral living and ancestral health in my own life as much as I can. And I try to instill these concepts in, in the clients that I have as well, because it's not just software engineers that spend a lot of time in front of the computers. You know, pretty much most people spend a lot of time in front of the computer uh, are very, very sedentary. So as you can see if on the video, I'm at a standing desk, which is a purchase that I made, uh, I don't know, four, four years ago or something like that. Um, and uh, so I stand pretty much throughout my day. I sit when I eat. 
Um, so I do take a break like that. Um, but for me, one of the biggest things that I do and the biggest thing, because not everyone can have a standing desk, um, although there are some cheap alternatives, but, um, you know, one of the biggest things that I think everyone can do, um, is walking and I'm a huge advocate of walking. Um, I start my day out walking. I take breaks, um, especially after I eat pretty much. I align my walking with my eating. So when I eat, I'll then go out pretty soon after that to go for a walk. Um, and this is something that I work with on my clients as well Is like, I want you to hit, you know, even though I know that the 10,000 step rule is kind of like this fictional thing that was made up by a fitness tracking company from Japan a while ago. Uh, it's a good metric to hit. So if I say you can hit like eight to thousand, eight to 10,000 steps a day, you're pretty good. Um, you know, so I'm a huge fan of walking to break up my day. Um, I do have a nice home gym as well. So occasionally I'll pop downstairs, uh, pull up bar, you know, kettlebells and a trap bar and all that stuff. And I might break up my day with some, some movement and stuff like that, especially if the weather's pretty terrible, um, raining in other words. Uh, but other than that, other, other than the rain, I pretty much go outside when it's snowing, when it's below zero, I, I always go outside for a walk, um, just because you get some sunlight on your, your eyes that the benefits for circadian rhythm that happened with that. And, uh, yeah, the huge benefit of just getting outside and just being in nature and, and just taking a break from the screen. Um, I, I'm just a huge advocate of walking. There's no better form of, of, of movement than walking. Well, I'm glad you're talking about this, uh, in the winter from your New Hampshire location, because, uh, it seems to me that we've been, we've become so, uh, anesthetize against um, weather weather changes, and so averse to anything but a temperature controlled environment uh, throughout the day and throughout the night. And you know, you can go outside in New Hampshire when it's twenty seven degrees and walk for seven minutes, and it's not going to adversely affect your health or send you into hypothermia. And in fact, we now know with the research on cold exposure. Of course, I'm a big enthusiast of doing the jumping in the chest freezer and doing a hardcore water immersion. But when you get out there in the cold air, there's great research from Ray Cronice, the um, the NASA scientist down in Alabama, where he lost, I think, uh, 27 pounds of body fat in six weeks from just making himself cold through what he called shiver walks and sleeping uh, without sufficient blankets and just uh, giving his body, you know, some therapeutic cold exposure, not stupid cold exposure. But again, when you take these brief outdoor excursions and yeah, guess what? You're going to be a little chilly when you come back in your warm house and appreciate the heck out of that fireplace or that central heating. Uh, but that seems to be a missing element, even in, even with people in, uh, you know, a, a temperate climate where it's it's 49 degrees outside and sunny, but it's too cold for them to walk around the block. Yeah, for sure. Like, I, you know, uh, 27 degrees would be warm. So <laughs> uh, when it what gets am I out, talking about? What yeah, about minus three? Then what do you yeah, do? Yeah, when it's windy and snowy and the snow is pelting you in the face, it takes a lot of fortitude to get out there and do it. And I, I do things like cold showers too. So, um, you know, I know that's kind of, kind of like a, an extreme thing. Not everyone's going to do that. Uh, but there are certainly some interesting benefits to um, exposing yourself to, to different temperatures. Um, I think ancestrally, that was probably norm, right? We were outside in the cold in the winter. We were, you know, outside in the heat in the summer. Um, and so I think there's a lot of benefits to that. I'm actually uh, in the midst of taking uh, a course from Dr. Mike T. Nelson on physiologic flexibility, where he's diving into a lot of the research around cold exposure and heat exposure and stuff like that. So definitely some interesting uh, health benefits, uh, 
that, that come along with that. But I think the mental benefit of, of just being resilient, a resilient human to exposing yourself to the heat or to the cold and being able to do that is just, is, is benefit in itself to enough, enough to do it. You know? Yeah. Good point. I mean, with this chest freezer plunge that I do uh, most every day or go into cold Lake Tahoe in the months where it counts as cold exposure in the summer, it's now warmed up for whatever reason up into near 70. So that doesn't count. But if you stay in long enough, it counts. You can still get cold and in, in a 70 degree swim in, in 10 minutes. Um, but there's the great research that you get a, a boost of the um, mood elevating hormones like norepinephrine right away from a very brief cold exposure. But I realize over time that um, just being able to say that I do this and, and tell the, the public on a podcast and also, you know, be a person of my word to, um, you know, proceed with this, um, with this regimen most every day. Um, it, it's kind of empowering. And I feel like it makes me a more, uh, focused and resilient person against all other forms of uh, of, of distress and also distraction. Because every day I'm telling myself a story when it's time to go in the cold tub, and I, it's something like, "Well, maybe I should sweep the kitchen floor first. It's kind of dirty, or maybe I'll go and uh, make that phone call and, and then go." And it, it's just this battle in my mind to try to procrastinate, but I know I have to get it over with. It's now been ingrained into habit, so it's not. Um, it's not something that's negotiable, uh, but to win that battle against yourself every day when we're sitting here, uh, you know, distracted constantly by YouTube videos and social media feeds when we're supposed to be doing something uh, more productive and more focused. Uh, I think it's helping me fight this battle. I'm not saying I'm winning the battle against YouTube or against my email inbox when it's time to, to finish a book draft, but um, the more we can add these things into our life, I think we we start to build that um, that discipline that's you know sorely needed now in the in the age of hyperstimulation. Yeah, and I think to to tie this back to the the concept of breathing and and how we breathe, um, you know, I find that some of the the breathing exercises to improve um, your your breathing habits, you know, such as breath holding, it takes a lot of mental fortitude to do right because you're uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to hold your breath beyond you know, what you're used to. And, um, just like diving in the cold pool or the, the doing a cold plunge or getting in the sauna and staying in there and sitting in there while you're completely, you know, uncomfortable or just like obstacle course racing where you're, it's freezing out, you know, you're wet and you're running in wet clothes and, uh, you're climbing up the side of a mountain and everything hurts. Um, you know, just being okay with that discomfort, uh, whether it's breathing or caught or cold or a physical activity or something like that is something that a lot of people, you know, lack today. And, you know, I think is, is the reason why a lot of people are drawn to these activities because it is something I think that we crave instinctually for some strange reason. It's just something we evolved uh, around and we're too comfortable today. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny to see this emergence of obstacle course racing. Cause when we were little kids growing up, we would uh, build these obstacle courses and have challenges all the time with the neighborhood kids. And that mm -hmm. was just part of playing and being a kid. And now here it is where, you know, people are paying large sums of money to go and uh, <laughs> do this crazy stuff. But I think as life gets more and more comfortable and we have more and more uh, sedentary forces, yeah, people are inclined to bust out. I wish it was more than, um, 
you know, 2.1% of the population or whatever the number is that of people that are out there on the starting lines are doing something challenging. Uh, but, you know, hopefully the uh, momentum can continue to build. Yeah, for sure. I hope so too. Okay. So you mentioned breathing, man, and your email just uh, knocked me flat. It was, it was incredible <laughs> insights that um, I think are really important to discuss and uh, getting us into this, uh, you know, the primal endurance uh, message that we talked about so much was the difference between a fat burning workout and a sugar burning workout, and especially a sugar or a glucose burning workout pattern that becomes overly stressful. And this is particularly the um, the template in the endurance community where people think that they are training their body properly for an endurance goal, like a Spartan race, like a half marathon, like a 10K, like a marathon, like an ultra, like a triathlon, whatever. But in fact, they're having the uh, an adverse metabolic effect to the workout because the workout, the pace, the effort is slightly too difficult. And I think most listeners are familiar. I just wanted to tee it up a little bit with that clear distinction between burning fat and burning carbs. Uh, but beyond the heart rate, you also mentioned uh, the critical importance of uh, oxygen exchange and your breathing practice during these workouts. Yeah, it was something that, you know, I, like like um, many people um, that have followed, uh, you know, Mark and you and, and read Primal Endurance and uh, and are familiar with Phil Mathetone, um, you know, they realize that uh, if they use something like the, the math method where you take, you know, your heart, your, your age and subtract it from 100, 180 and you keep your heart rate below that, that you're, you're mostly burning, um, uh, fat for fuel while you're exercising, as long as your heart rate is below that. Um, and that's, you know, a great easy way to ensure that you're upregulating your, your fat burning capacity and you're staying aerobic and you're not overtraining or, or, or restraining yourself all the time. And of course it's, it's okay to go over that heart rate when you need to, or in certain times, you know, certain workouts and whatnot, but for a majority of the people and the majority of, of people training, it makes sense to do a majority of your training at this, this lower level aerobic, um, um, uh, effort. And, um, so, you know, I was, you know, for years, I've just adhered to that and, you know, thought that, you know, as long as you're below this heart rate, you're, you're primarily, um, you know, burning fat. And, um, I think that's probably the case for most people. Um, but recently I've been kind of, you know, come across a lot of information, especially with books like, um, the oxygen, oxygen advantage from Patrick McEwen and, um, uh, breathe by most more recently breathe by James Nestor. I've been kind of reading about breathing and, and the importance of how we breathe and how that impacts stuff. And, um, you know, I real as I started to dive down into the science of it, um, I realized that, oh, you know, the, the more, we actually can't deliver you know, the thing that delivers that causes our, our muscles to get oxygen is the amount of carbon, not carbon dioxide in our, uh, produced by our muscles. <clears throat> and if you don't deliver oxygen to the muscle, then you're going to actually burn more glucose because oxygen is required in order to trans to, to take fat and convert it into energy. Um, so if you're not getting enough oxygen muscle, you're going to burn more glucose and, uh, your breathing actually dictates the amount of oxygen, uh, carbon dioxide in your muscle, right? So when we breathe in, we take in oxygen, we breathe out, we exhale carbon dioxide. And if we're breathing too frequently, we are reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in our blood. Therefore, 
there won't be any oxygen delivered to the muscles because carbon dioxide is is I'm sorry oxygen uh, carbon dioxide is required to deliver oxygen to the muscle um, and so if we don't have enough carbon dioxide in our body we won't get any oxygen and therefore without the oxygen we can't um, take fat and convert it into energy and therefore we're going to rely more heavily on glucose and carbohydrates in order to produce the, the energy required to move our muscles so we could be exercising at you know, 180 minus our age, or we could be sitting on the couch. And if we're just breathing incredibly fast all the time and exhaling a whole bunch of carbon dioxide, we're actually using more glucose to fuel our body than we need to. So if we change the way we breathe, we could actually improve our fat burning capacity. So I know it's kind of confusing. <laughs> uh, well, I think we're, um, we can follow this by realizing that um, when we're going at a slow pace, it's easy to breathe. And I think we're just kind of taking for granted uh, the efficiency of breathing. Uh, when you're walking or jogging, it's a lot easier to um, exchange the oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, versus when you're uh, getting near that 180 minus age cutoff. Uh, but then when we uh, come into uh, breathing efficiency, uh, it's quite uh, apparent that a lot of us breathe in a shallow, panting manner just because we haven't been properly trained. We haven't been to enough hours of uh, meditation yoga retreats. Uh, so even when you're going slow, I think this was where you uh, made a great challenge with your lengthy email and said, hey, we got to talk about this on a podcast. Because even if you're jogging along slow at the proper pace and you're looking at your heart rate, if you're uh, not getting a full exchange uh, and, and using your lungs, especially the lower lobes of the lungs where the oxygen exchange is the best, where, where all the blood is because it's, you know, uh, gravity's putting it in the lower part of the lungs. And that means you have to inflate your diaphragm, engage the entire lung and do a, a proper exchange of air. And I think we're all guilty of uh, having this shallow panting breathing effect, even when we're, like you say, sitting at our computer and you're stressed over uh, an email that uh, that lights you up and you're, you're uh, right firing back a response where you're breathing <laughs> and activating sympathetic nervous system response and arguably uh, burning glucose instead of fat, even when you're not even exercising. Yeah. I, actually, I, I'm going to challenge you a little bit because I think that a lot of people, myself included, I'm going to throw myself in this in this category as well. People who have been training at 180 minus their age and you know doing a lot of aerobic training still might have a hard time breathing through their nose on during certain exercises. Right? I, I until like a few months ago, always breathed through my mouth while I was running, even at 180 minus my age for the most part, and when I, when I realized this and I said, okay, I'm going to really try to make an effort to really breathe through my nose and slow my breathing down and try to um, retain more carbon dioxide in my body by doing so, um, it was, it's challenging. It's not easy. It, it, like I said, it is a mental battle because you are, feel like you are sucking air through a straw and <laughs> uh, it is, you want to open your mouth as, as, as quick as possible, taking the biggest breath as you can. And it really does slow you down. Like I was way below my math heart rate when I was running the first time I tried this and it was a challenge. Right. Um, and the same thing, like I do a lot of, of, of workouts on the rower too, and you're just 
you know, you feel like you're, you can cruise along, you know, very easy on the rower, but as soon as you start to close your mouth and breathe exclusively through your nose, what was once an easy workout can be quite challenging. And it's not challenging physically, it's challenging mentally because you're not used to breathing at that slow pace and having that much carbon dioxide in your body. It just becomes a quite an uncomfortable experience. So if you're not used to it, I think that even if you were doing a rower workouts, I think that you're, you're probably still going to find it challenging. You'll probably still have to slow down uh, even more than you were used to. Yeah. I call it the, the snot patrol because <laughs> you're trying to, you're trying so hard to, let's say, maintain your pace instead of having to slow to a walk. And then that nose is really starting to work. And I think we need to, um, uh, clarify that or explain when you're talking about nasal breathing, uh, you close your mouth and just use your nose to breathe. All of a sudden you are facilitating a, a really efficient, uh, use of the diaphragm and, and proper exchange of breath because it's not as easy to just you know shove that oxygen down uh, the the big the big pipeline in your mouth and so uh, anyone can try this right now while they're listening to the show just close your mouth and take a few breaths through your nostrils mm. and yeah now you're really pulling you're understanding that you have to inflate that abdomen to get the diaphragm working otherwise you're gonna uh, like you say desperately open your mouth and uh, catch some air and yeah. I I'm, I've been trying to do this uh, since I first read about it in 1998 in John Dooliard's book, Mind, Body, and Sport, where he's talking about this nose breathing and making a really wonderful case that the stress impact of the workout is going to be lowered if you can uh, get through it breathing through your nose uh, because you're activating parasympathetic instead of sympathetic with the, the proper breathing. And it was so fascinating to me thinking that, hey, if I can go run six miles at whatever pace and have it be less stressful than my typical workout with the panting breathing, uh, I can become a more accomplished athlete and, and work harder and, and put up more, put up bigger numbers and, and build my fitness without having to risk the... Um, the, the overstress overtraining pattern. So I've been enthusiast for a long time, but you know, even years and years later, um, it takes so much, uh, it's like mindfulness to remember to close the freaking mouth and, and breathe through your nose. And it's so e you can so easily and lazily just go back to the open mouth, breathing more, uh, breathing, you know, less with less awareness uh, but then we get into, and we're going to talk further about this uh, CO2 so we can really fully understand it. Yeah, and I think paying, you know, the first step is paying attention to what you're doing just in your everyday life, right, outside of exercise. Um, because like a lot of people, like you said, are just, you know, staring at the computer or watching TV, and they're not even aware of the fact that they're breathing through their mouth, and for no apparent reason, right? They're just, just habit, right? Um, and once you become aware of it, and you have to just consciously close your mouth. Right. And it's going to take some time. And, and that might feel that's like the first step. Right. And then other people, you know, a whole other topic about around this is like breathing, how you breathe at night. Um, and you know, things like mouth taping and, and whatnot, which I've, I've played around with as well. But a lot of people find that, um, you know, once they start to control their breathing during the day at night, if they take their mouth, they, they end up getting better sleep and, you know, all these, all these amazing benefits happen once they start, forcing themselves to breathe through the nose at night as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really step one is just re really, what are you doing every day and how are you breathing every day? Are you taking, you know, mouth breaths just throughout the day or doing nothing physically demanding at all? And then, yeah, once you start paying attention to that, you know, and correcting that, uh, paying attention to what you're doing during your workouts, um, when you're supposed to be aerobic, can you breathe through your nose exclusively 
Um, and it does, it does, I think it does facilitate, um, you know, a less stressful workout. I think it, it makes it uh, less impact on the body. And part of that's due because you, you do, you're going to have to slow down a little bit, um, at the beginning cause you're not used to it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just a very, it's a more soothing way of, of exercising than just stressing your body out by breathing hard all the time, you know? Yeah. And like that idea of, Hey, let, let's work on this at rest first, before you yeah. go and try to do your, your usual bike ride, rowing workout or run, uh, yeah. with your mouth shut. And, yeah. I think um, like a lot, lots of people are going to have a hard time just walking, you know, go walk up a yeah. hill, go walk up a steep hill and see, or hike up a hill and see if you can keep your mouth shut the whole time. Don't even bother like work, working out, turn the watch off. You know, you don't need that, right? <laughs> just walk up the hill outside your house and, and see if you can do that without opening your mouth, right? If you can't do that, then you have no business going for a run, trying to close your mouth and, and breathe through your nose um, all the time. And, and sleeping is a big deal too. And I talk to so many people where, well, I have, you know, my, my nose gets stuffed up all the time, so I can't do that. And uh, FYI, people, this is a, a hugely bad deal. And there's so much uh, research and more people suffering from um, sleep apnea and sleep disturbances and things like that. And the breathe right nasal strip has been a popular selling item for people to kind of, um, you know, get force those nostrils open at night. I used that for years and then I, I thought I was becoming dependent on it. And so I tried not using it and had to kind of work through that again. But um, our, our nose should be, uh, you know, clear and active all night. And if that isn't the reality for you, um, there might be some uh, medical intervention necessary and at least looking into this thing. So yeah, the, um, the mouth taping is kind of a funny concept if you're not familiar with it. I remember um, I was talking to Mike Mutzel, High Intensity Health. He's got that really popular YouTube and podcast. And um, he gave one of the great one-liners. He said, yeah, we tape our seven-year-old's mouth shut every night. <laughs> and he, he didn't realize how it came off, but he's getting his <laughs> he's getting his kid involved early on. But yeah, the, the the practice of mouth taping, since you just mentioned it briefly, is you actually get some uh, you know tape made for this purpose, made by Scotch. You can find it on Amazon, and you tape your mouth shut so that when you fall asleep, you're still breathing through your nose uh, and not even you know aware of it. So. I think that's maybe an advanced practice because I don't know how it would go if you just tried it one night and you haven't been practicing nose breathing before, but a very interesting concept. Yeah. I, th I think, you know, it's not something I suggest that people just dive into right away. I think you can play around with it after a while and you can become more comfortable with it. And it's not as terrible as it sounds, right? You're not taping your entire mouth. You're not, you know, like taping your entire mouth over with tape and you might see videos of people doing this. Literally all you need is like a stamp size piece of tape and you just put it over the front of your lips. Um, so you could open your mouth if you want to. Um, uh, but uh, it just, while you're unconscious and sleeping, it just forces you to keep your jaw shut, right? And is not to drift open and, and start breathing through your, through your mouth. Um, so yeah, it's not as intimidating as it sounds up front, uh, but it is a little weird. My wife did look at me quite strange when I told her I was going to do this, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she can tell you all about her day as soon as you put that strip of tape on and then it's her turn. You just get to listen and, uh, yeah, uh, listen and acknowledge without offering. This is John Gray's advice. Uh, listen to your female as she vents and, and like talks through things without offering advice or solutions or criticism. Love it. Yeah. The mouth taping. Yeah. Ritual mouth taping the wife putting it on the husband at night. Okay. <laughs> 
And now let me tell you about my trip to the shopping mall. Yeah. Okay. So I want you to um, uh, let's go into more detail about this um, CO2 efficiency mm. and your sentence here. The more CO2 we can tolerate and keep in the muscle, the more oxygen we can move from the blood to the muscle. And mm. you said that earlier when you, you described how, um, you know, we need that, we need that CO2 to exchange oxygen. So let's get a little sciency here and hopefully everyone can really grasp this. Yeah, so so basically as you take in oxygen through your lungs, it, it goes uh, into your lungs and then the blood um, runs by your lungs and picks up these, these oxygen molecules and sticks them into things called hemoglobin, hemoglobin in the red blood cells. And as the blood cells travel throughout your body, uh, they will deposit oxygen into the muscles that need them. But the only way that that deposit will happen or that that will happen is if there is CO2 in the muscle. So it's like an exchange and it's called the Bohr effect. So there needs to be uh, carbon dioxide in your muscle in order for the oxygen to come out of the red blood cell and go into the muscle and for the CO2 to be taken out of the muscle and into the red blood cell delivered back to the lungs to be exhaled. So if you're constantly breathing, you know, constantly exhaling, you're breathing really fast, you're exhaling a whole bunch of CO2 the amount of CO2 in your body is going to drop. And that means you could have all the oxygen, you could be sucking in as much oxygen as you possibly can. All the You time. could have a mask on if you're yeah. a, a, a hospital patient, right? Mm-hmm. With, with the oxygen flowing in there, yeah. but it's, it's not, it's not going to have that effect. It's sort of like a, would, would this be like a, a barter system? You could make that analogy, right? right? So you have to have some, you have to be trading some CO2. Otherwise the, the hemoglobin is going to say, forget it. Right. So you're, you're, is if you could have all the oxygen you want, your, your blood could be hundred percent oxygenated, which is not possible, but it could be right. And if you don't have enough CO2, if there's no CO2 in the muscle, there's nothing, you're not going to get that oxygen into the muscle. So one way to get more oxygen into your muscle is to be able to tolerate more CO2. So to keep more CO2 around in your body, and that will deliver more oxygen to the muscles. And therefore, you know, when we're talking about burning fat or burning fat at a higher heart rate threshold, um, you, uh, can keep more CO2 around, you'll get more oxygen to the muscle, allowing your body to metabolize fat, um, and turn it into energy because we need that oxygen there in order to happen. If the oxygen isn't there, then it's just going to, your muscles can purely rely on glucose in order to produce the energy it needs. So with, uh, proper diaphragmatic breathing and getting, I guess, uh, how are you keeping the CO2 in the muscles? You're, you're training yourself to become more comfortable with that uncomfortable sensation, right? So just like we become very adapt to uh, being at a temperature of 70 degrees all the time, um, you know, uh, we've become very adapt at this tolerance, this, this very low tolerance to CO2. So we're constantly breathing to get the CO2 low because it's uncomfortable to keep CO2 around your body. It's, you want to exhale it because it needs to be kept in balance, but you can take, you can't tolerate more than you're probably comfortable with. So one way to do this, um, actually your CO2 tolerance automatically goes up if you're exercising, right? Cause you're, you're, you're taking, you're producing a lot more carbon dioxide as you're working out because you're, you're moving a lot more, right? Mm. So if you're an exerciser, you're, you're already at an advantage, at advantage if you're exercising consistently. But another very easy way, like we said, is just breathing exclusively through your nose. Because when you start breathing through your nose, you have to, you unconsciously have to slow down your breathing rate. You can't breathe as fast as you normally would, right? 
This is why it's so challenging, right? So just starting to breathe more through your nose is going to increase your carbon dioxide tolerance. And then once you can do that fairly easily, just doing everyday normal activities, then you can start doing things like, oh, going for a walk, or I'm going to do breath holds instead, right? Mm. I'm going to do breath holds at, at rest. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've started doing or playing around with is doing breath holds uh, during my meditation and during my sauna. So while I'm just sitting there in my meditation, you know, you're always told to focus on your breath and that helps you keep your mind, you know, focused and not have all these random thoughts or whatever. So I thought, well, why don't I just focus on my breath by holding it? So I'll do just kind of like box breathing exercises um, and I'll hold my breath um, for certain lengths of time, uh, kind of increase the time as the meditation goes on. Um, and that's another way, right? You're just sitting around, you know, whether you're in the sauna, you're, you're watching TV, you're doing whatever basic normal everyday activities, um, you know, breath holds will help increase your, your carbon dioxide tolerance too, right? Cause you're, you're holding your breath, the carbon dioxide is breathing is building up in your body and you're doing everything you want, to, you can not to like suck in air, right? You're just becoming more tolerant to that. Um, and there's, there's various tests that we can do, right? There's a couple of people that have, um, come up with different tests um, to measure your carbon dioxide tolerance. And, oh, um, yes. You made me take that test. I forgot <laughs> to write it down. Can can you describe that? That was super fun. Yeah. So there's there's two of them. Um, the, Baxter, the, the Baxter exam, they call it. Here we <laughs> go. It was not me who came up with this at all. Uh, there's two of them that are they're fairly common. Um, the one that you did was um, from this, this organi organization called Shift Adapt. Basically, you want to do this when you're pretty calm and relaxed and at rest. So um, the, the best time to do it, in my opinion, is to do it first thing in the morning where you're having, you're not stressed out or anything like that. Um, and you just, you, you sit down, you take a few just normal nasal breaths and then you take one last nasal breath and then you start a timer and you breathe out all your air and you keep that timer going until you can't breathe out any more air and you stop it. Um, so you'll come up with some certain time. Um, and then there's different levels on like, you know, if you get, you know, I figure what the different levels are off the top of my head, but you know, 10 to 20 seconds is below par. You know, if you go in 20 seconds, 30 seconds, you're doing all right. You get, you know, getting above 60 seconds, you're pretty much, you know, an expert. Um, you're doing pretty well at your carbon dioxide tolerance. And the other test uh, is um, from the oxygen advantage from Patrick McKeown and uh, it's called the bolt test. And it's kind of similar, except in this one, you're holding your breath. And so you do it first thing in the morning. You're pretty relaxed, calm, that type of thing. You're taking a few normal breaths. You take one last breath and then you hold your breath as long as you possibly can until you have that first desire to breathe again. And again, you start it once you start, you start your timer, once you start holding your breath. And then once you have that first desire to breathe, you stop it. Um, and again, there's different levels for how, how long you can hold your breath for. Um, the advantage, I, I think personally, I like the shift adapt test where you're breathing out because uh, people tend to, when you're doing the bolt test, like you can get pretty competitive about it. Like I'm really going to push myself to like, you know, hold my breath as far as I possibly can until I pass out. And like, that's not the point, right? It's supposed to be that first urge to breathe. So really competitive people that want to challenge themselves can really push it beyond kind of what they should. Um, whereas if just they're in water, they can die, which is uh, <laughs> no joke. Yeah. A, a yeah. lot of the Wim Hof enthusiasts, th yeah. there's been a, a few reported deaths because they're uh, irresponsibly mixing uh, cold water immersion with breath practice. Those two do not go together. It's like drinking and driving. <laughs> People don't do it. Don't do this stuff around water. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but once you like, you can use either one of these tests and you get a baseline just like anything else. And um, 
then you can start doing some of these breathing exercises, whether it's just transitioning to breathing through your nose and then, you know, try that for a few weeks, a few months and do the test again and see how you improve. And then you could do breath holds, you know, during your meditation or whenever uh, at rest and then, you know, see how that improves and just keep on building up. And then you can measure your carbon dioxide tolerance that way. Um, and that will show you that you're improving your carbon dioxide tolerance and therefore you're, you're taking in less air um, and keeping that, that CO2 level a little bit higher, um, allowing you to um, efficiently um, burn more fat, essentially, you know, at rest and improve, improve your metabolic flexibility, I think, by doing so. Well, also, from what I understand, uh, Scott Carney's excellent book, What Doesn't Kill Us, and he's um, referencing uh, the Wim Hof practices, and he described leveraging this uh, CO2 buildup to have an amazing performance breakthrough with his uh, maximum one set pushups to to uh, to failure. Um, do you know uh, what's going on there with this? These incredible, um, just I think I'm describing it right. Where he he did a series of uh, the, the Wim Hof uh, familiar uh, breathing drills, where you do uh, a, a couple sets of thirty counts of aggressive inhale and natural exhale, and then he actually held his breath. And busted his push-up PR out of, out of the park. So what was what was going on there? I'm not sure about that one. I haven't heard that 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 story yet um, uh, about doing that. But there's certainly a lot of um, I don't know. I, I want to say anecdotal evidence that uh, improving your breathing practices can translate into athletic performance gains. Um, you know, there's if you if you read through. Um, you know, both the, the oxygen advantage and breathe by James Nestor. There'll be many accounts in there, um, of, of people changing the way they're breathing and having these huge breakthroughs, you know, from winning Olympic gold medals and marathons and performing all kinds of strength feats and all this other stuff just by changing the way they're breathing. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure this, the research has backed that up yet. Um, there's definitely one-off accounts of it, but uh, as far as I can tell, I've done a lot of PubMed research and, and whatnot on this to see if I can come up with any studies that show, Oh, you know, if you do this breathing practice, you know, um, it will, you know, increase your VO two max or your one RM or whatever, right. Post breathing or whatnot. Um, certainly you can put yourself in some certain physiological states. Like, uh, when you start to, you know, people will say, well, when you start to do breath holds, you can simulate high altitude, training, uh, where, you know, people who go train it up in the mountains for a while and then come back and, and race and they, they break all kinds of PRs. And because it's, you know, this increased number of red blood cells causing caused by not having as, as much oxygen at high altitude, you can simulate something similar by just doing breath holds, but I'm not, I'm not sure that effect lasts very long. <laughs> so when you're at sea level, because you're not, you're, Whereas in your mountains, you're constantly under this pressure of not having enough oxygen 24 hours a day. But when you're at sea level, you're just breathing, doing breath holds. Well, you're not doing breath holds 24 hours a day. So, you know, maybe you get some of this acute effect of having more red blood cells uh, in your body. And maybe, you know, at that moment, you might, you know, be able to do something more effective right after uh, or more performant right, right after. But I'm not sure how, if that lasts over time you know, how long that will last for. So 
Yeah, the altitude um, training effect doesn't last very long, yeah. uh, but people can come down and and set world records uh, by training at altitude for six weeks, coming down to sea level, and the race is hopefully within the next three days because your hematocrit will will continually adjust. Um, hematocrit is the amount of um, red blood cell percentage of red blood cells in your in your body. That's what the athletes take when they're doping with the product EPO, uh, so they can you know be highly oxygenated artificially and um, you know compete in the Tour de France and and set uh, set world records on the on the track and the other sports that have this uh, this doping problem. Uh, but the natural effect is is well substantiated that when you go up to altitude and train, your hematocrit goes up. But yes, when you go down to sea level, you don't need that extra red blood cell carrying capacity because there's more oxygen in the atmosphere. And I'm not sure how long that effect is, but you're right. It's only a few days. And then you start to, to lose that altitude training effect. Yeah. So there's definitely ac- acutely like studies will show that if you do breath holds, you, you get the same effect, right? E- EPO gets released from your kidneys. It causes more red, bl- red blood cells to be produced in your body and your red blood cell count will go up. But once you stop breath holding, you know, that's going to go away, right? Because you're immediately adapt to having more oxygen. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, 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 it's a very short term thing when you're at sea level. So um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if you're really going to get too much of a performance benefit. I think swimmers, there's some research that showed, I believe I came across today that showed that swimmers can really benefit from this because, uh, and I'm not a swimmer at all, so I'm not too familiar with this personally, but you know, obviously when you're swimming, you're holding your breath for some period of time and then you're you're taking a, a breath, right? So if you can become, if you can improve your CO2 tolerance and hold your breath longer uh, while you're swimming, you might come up with some, some advantage by doing that. Um, but uh, it's just purely, I think, just being able to tolerate more CO2 rather than, you know, anything else, right? Um, so, but if you're a runner or a strength athlete, uh, you know, I haven't been able to find too much research that shows that breath holds translate into long-term performance gains for those, those athletes. Right. I don't, I mean, the swimmers have done hypoxic training forever uh, as part of their protocol. And I think it's harder to, um, to obtain enough oxygen when your face is in the water for half of your race versus, you know, you're running the 200 meters on a track lasting 30 seconds versus a, a sprint in the swim. It's a lot tougher, I find anyway, um, to, to get that to get that oxygen. So I'm, I'm sure that helps swimmers a lot. Uh, but yeah, this this Scott Carney anecdote where he's immediately able to you know double his push up competency while his breath is held. Um, that that's pretty mind blowing because yeah. you know and and he he's describing in the book how even a novice can do the protocol right here today and then go to your pull up bar and see if you can increase your reps and um, that, that's pretty wild but I guess um, if the if the muscle is um, loaded with CO two uh, you're gonna you're gonna you get a, a um, more oxygen to that muscle yeah. Okay, so the the muscles loaded with CO two because you're holding your breath when you start, and so during the sequence of pull ups or push ups, you're getting a better exchange of oxygen and CO two, even though you're not breathing. It's still happening with your with your bloodstream. I could see that. Yeah, I could see that because there's oxygen already in your blood, right? So I could see that. All right, being the case. we're figuring it out. Ryan and <laughs> I are figuring it out. I could yeah. see that being the case. I'd like to see, you know, for sure. For obviously, you're going to have to breathe at some point, right? So, you know, how many push-ups are you doing in, you know, 
etc. Right? Um, yeah, I could see that that being the case that you're delivering more oxygen in the short term uh, to the muscle because you're holding your breath and building up that CO2. Um, and there's already oxygen in your blood, so you don't really need to take a breath during that time. But yeah, I'll have to have to read into that. I didn't hear that account, so that's that's kind of interesting. Well, also Wim Hof's doing something with whether whether the uh, viewer thinks he's a freak of nature or not. His main uh, contribution and his most amazing accomplishment is taking the novices and doing this crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the the record setting pack that climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in record time was comprised of a bunch of novices that were uh, under his uh, tutelage mm-hmm. doing the, the breathing practice, and they ascended to higher altitudes without the usual acclimation period necessary so Mm -hmm. something was going on as they were um improving their their co2 tolerance in their muscles where they just floated up the mountain in 26 hours yeah yeah and i I think that you know you know i again i haven't personally researched that and looked into what was happening but you know i can see that just becoming again becoming more acclimated to the 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 buildup of carbon dioxide in your body and becoming more comfortable with that could just in itself make it easier for you to operate at higher altitudes, um, even though you're at sea, you've been doing it at sea level, right? Um, because you're just tolerating that that uncomfortableness more, uh, getting used to doing it, right? So just the the pure fact that I go out for a run and force myself to keep my mouth closed and become uncomfortable by you know building up more CO two in my body could give me somewhat of an advantage. I can see that just psychologically. Once I get to the to the mountain, and I also don't have as much oxygen, and I'm experiencing more CO2 build up in my body just from altitude. Um, so yeah, I could definitely see that providing some type of advantage, whether it's actually a physiological advantage or a mental advantage, right? You know, referencing you know some of the stuff uh, uh, in the book Endure, and just the 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 role the mind plays in in these activities when you're you're pushed against the wall and you're trying to battle something physically, right? Yeah, the the central governor theory, it it is the mind. I mean, um, this is Tim Noakes advancing this theory where, uh, for example, when you uh, hit the wall in the marathon, the the science has told us that your glycogen is depleted in your muscles. And in physiological fact, there is still glycogen left in the muscle, even though you can't continue for another block down the street. Uh, but it's your brain protecting you from perceived damage but, and just forcing you to stop because your brain doesn't want to go any longer. But if someone came over and put a gun to your head at, when you cross the finish line at the Spartan 50K Spartan race and said, <laughs> hey, you're doing one more lap, Ryan. And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm spent. Well, you, you could actually do it because uh, it's just the brain that's limiting you from doing another stupid, ridiculous lap because it's going to take you you know, two months to recover from that instead of two weeks. Uh, yep. Yeah, fun stuff here. Yeah. All right, man. We have got it down. I appreciate the description, the explanation. Uh, I think we all appreciate the tremendous importance of breathing and getting that, getting that full exchange of oxygen to carbon dioxide with every breath. And we're going to go start out on this path with uh, practicing some nose breathing. And I like how you suggest uh, doing it in the sauna or meditation at first, and then then on your walk around the block in, in uh, minus three degrees or whatever the conditions are, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Start slow. Do it. Just just pay attention to what your breathing is like. Just at rest, doing your everyday activities, and then you can incorporate some of these breath hold stuff. And if, if you're looking for a good 
uh, exercises do. I think the oxygen advantage has a lot of good exercises, you know, listed out in the book, um, as far as breath hold exercises, both at rest and, um, during, uh, physical activity, he even specifies, you know, to do biking, cycling, running, swimming, um, that type of stuff. Um, so yeah, that'd be a good, good reference point if you're looking for different types of exercises to do, but yeah, just start out paying attention to what you're, what you're reading, just doing your everyday activities. So. Love it. Great show. Right on. Uh, where do we find you with your coaching services? Do you have a presence or how do we connect further? Yeah. So, um, I have a few different ways you can connect. If you go to rjbhealth.coach, that's my website and blog. You can find my blog post. The blog post that, that Brad was referencing earlier is up there. You can check that out along with a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, on uh, Instagram, you can find me at rjbhealthcoaching. Uh, that's my health coaching page. And then uh, Ryan Jason Baxter uh, on Instagram for my um, my personal page. Um, and yeah, um, uh, same thing on, on Facebook. You can find me at RJB Health Coaching on Facebook. Um, and uh, all that stuff is linked from my, my, my homepage anyways. And uh, always love talking to people. Feel free to DM me, email me, whatever. Uh, always love talking to people. So yeah, reach out. Right on. I didn't know you could have a URL ending dot coach. That is pretty slick. So coaches beware, get, jump on that before someone takes your, your name dot coach, you know, reserve yep. it for yourself. Right on. Yep. Yep. For sure. I, I didn't know that either, even though I'm a technical guy, <laughs> but when I was looking for the domain name, I was like, Oh, that, that's, that's pretty cool. I'll do that. So yeah. Ryan Baxter, thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening everybody. That's a wrap. Ba, 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 da, ba, ba. Make sure every salad is dressed for success with Primal Kitchen dressings and marinades. Versatile, flavorful, and unique, use Primal Kitchen dressings to marinate meats, dunk veggies, and add complexity to your favorite salads. With keto-certified, certified paleo, and Whole30 approved options, finding your salad soulmate is a snap. Choose from updated classics like ranch, Caesar, Italian, balsamic, honey mustard, or Greek. Or get adventurous with aromatic sesame ginger, zesty cilantro lime, creamy vegan ranch, or tangy lemon turmeric. Avocado oil-based, these dressings, vinaigrettes, and marinades are an easy, primal-approved way to upgrade any dish. So use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT to take 20% off your purchase at checkout.